morning. Great to be with you. And I'd invite you to just uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 3. And I'm going to be reading the rest of that chapter and uh, then sharing with you from it. I'm starting in verse 16, going down to 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we work through this text today. And right there in verse 5, as Scott had read, we see, what is Apollos? What is Paul? The question is not even who Paul might be, although we, the readers, recognize that he was a great missionary statesman. But the question is not about his personality, in which case we may ask who he might be. Paul does not want us to focus on him as a person, neither is he who plants anything. Rather, the question that must pull these readers up short from their factional dividing tendencies is to ask what Paul is. He is a servant. A servant is not the one getting the glory. He's not in the driver's seat, but merely doing what the master has assigned. And understanding here the what of Paul, the missionary leader, helps us to keep in right perspective the how of what what Paul was accomplishing or failing to accomplish. You might look at me as a missionary or at those who have come to believe at our hospital in West Africa and say, that's awesome. The how is by God's grace. Paul, as a servant, is only fruitful through God's spiritual regeneration and work of sanctification. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The Great Commission growth that we are all yearning for in a place like Niger, West Africa, or Columbia, Maryland, must be organically from God. Yes, I need to be faithful in God's power to sow. Yes, I need to be faithful with the Spirit's enabling to water. But it's God who gives the increase. The Bible often uses agricultural imagery to picture the growth of the church. Think of Mark 4. 
reads, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The emphasis in Mark, as in 1 Corinthians 3, is that it's not about the farmer. He knows not how, but the earth produces of itself. The farmer sleeps while God makes the sproutlings sprout. Growth comes directly from God. Salvation is by grace through faith. Your children and mine, they need that, that sprouting power from God. Nigerians need that sprouting power. These, these are beautiful and reformed and biblical doctrines that we need to be constantly reminded of. It's all about grace. I can't will it up or technique it up. I need grace and and the gift of faith for those I am ministering to and, and ultimately for my own twisted heart. But the passage here does speak of agency. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. So we are called here God's fellow workers. We are called to act through planting and watering. But there is no hierarchy. There is no factionalism. Those who send and those who go are not fundamentally different. We might have different roles in God's great plan, yes, but we maintain a fundamental unity in the midst of diversity. He who plants and he who waters, we are told, in verse 8, are one. But the Christ-centered nature of this unity within diversity is emphasized as the passage moves forward and the imagery sw switches from agricultural to construction. We are God's building. Christ is the foundation, or as elsewhere expressed, the cornerstone. This is a key point, that any group cohesiveness that we have with others, which is based on our hometown, our politics, or, or even our American citizenship must ultimately be relativized. For true, enduring unity, uh, as verse 11 here teaches, no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid for the Corinthians, which is Jesus Christ. Here we see that in describing the people of God as, as the temple, we are connecting into a rich vein of biblical imagery and teaching. Every individual Christian is a temple of the Lord. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And this is why we must offer up sacrifices, such as praise, thanksgiving, prayer, worship, with a broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51. As little temples, we are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. 
Romans 12. If we understand our status as little temples, we will strive to grow in holiness. But Paul here describes the people of God corporately, not just individually, as God's building. He will elaborate later in the epistle of 2 Corinthians, describing us as a magnificent temple being built up. This is from 2 Corinthians 6. For we, he writes, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And because we are a temple, we must encourage one another and build one another up. We must be incorporated as as living stones into a holy house offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we must lock into Christ the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God. All this accentuates the Old Testament background to Paul's imagery here. He is talking about us, the Christians, as God's temple, the place of God's holy indwelling and presence with humanity. We must think back, not not just to the wonder of, of Mount Sinai, but chapter after chapter in Exodus and Chronicles about the painstaking care with which the tabernacle and the temple were built. Israel poured out their gold winnings from the Egyptians. And in David's time, they brought so many offerings that King David had to tell them to stop bringing offerings. Exodus and Chronicles prescribed the precise measurements and the various pillars and accoutrements. God's spirit indwelt Bezalel, Aholiab, and Hurim like Paul, master craftsmen according to God's gifting. All of this adds to the gravity of what we are doing when we we lead a Bible study, discuss the truth with our children, or send a missionary. Are we building, verse 12 asks, are we building with, with gold, silver, and precious stones, or with wood, hay, and straw? The Bible here, as as so often, acts as a a double-edged sword in our life. Because where we are struggling with pride or works of righteousness in our Christian service, Paul has just gotten through putting us in our place in verse 9. I am God's workman, God's possession, God's temple. But now, in verse 12... The passage pivots, in a sense, and emphasizes that I must take my Christian tasks seriously. The gravity and importance of our work, of our our Christian devotion, is emphasized. The work that you do, again, whether it's enabling missions work or leading a Bible study, the work that you do is of great importance. We are called to serve. And the quality of our God-enabled work as Christians will be evaluated. 
We need to take care how we build, as our materials will be assessed. There will be a disclosure. Our God-dependent intentionality matters. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are to be holy. We are to be perfect. We have a tremendous tremendous responsibility to preserve and honor the sanctity of our fellow brothers and sisters. We have a massive commission from our Lord to fulfill to the very ends of the earth and the end of this age. So many idols, so many kinds of wisdom may distract us from keeping the main thing the main thing. So many false doctrines and kinds of entertainment may impinge our fixing our minds on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As Paul had written in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here, verse 18 to 20 furthers this thought, when it warns against the wisdom of this age, or the futility in boasting about men. It's all about Jesus. Our work is not about evangelistic techniques, although these are important. All of our success, all of our daily efforts to glorify Christ must be grounded on our union with Christ. Here is the key, Paul writes, picking up in verse 21 and 22. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We have an invincibility, an inheritance of all things, Paul writes, grounded in Christ as he channels his gratitude for all we possess as Christians. We are sons, enjoying the blessings of fellowship, the fruits of the Spirit, and divine protection in this life, before even considering the eternal bliss that is ours after death. But the cornerstone to notice here in 1 Corinthians 3 is Christ. Our gospel our hope, our inheritance, it's all tethered to Christ. I love the way the, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. What sort of mediator and deliverer, then, must we seek for? Answer, for one who is very man and, and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also very God. And this is where the Muslim attacks on Christ's divinity are so fundamental and so misguided. Yes, the incarnation is hard to understand. But without it, we have no hope. Only the God-man, only Jesus Christ can open the way for us who are born to destruction, 
for us who are children of wrath, that we might receive eternal life. But if we, if we reject this doctrine, we're like a man drowning in an ocean when suddenly a helicopter appears lowering a rope. A man's never seen a helicopter and cannot explain the physics behind it. Will he reject the rope? If Jesus is not who he said he was, if he did not do what he said he did on the cross, we have no hope. We are bound for hell. And we have no meaningful purpose. We might as well keep on building whatever it is we were building with hay and straw. But if this be true, let God be true, though every man a liar. If this is true, we are going to heaven in spite of ourselves because of what he has done. And our world is a revolutionary world. The hopeless, the outlandish, the visionary plan becomes feasible because God has ordered it. You don't have to go to Africa to see and feel cultural differences. Your spouse and your neighbor have ways of looking at the world which annoy your sensibilities. And yes, for me, there are massive cultural differences that I have with my house and neighbors, which I daily feel working in a hospital in West Africa. But I'm astonished at what unites me with my Hausa brothers and sisters who have embraced Christ. Yeah, we still have our cultural differences. In my selfishness, there are places that I wish others would just change. But Hausa believers are different from their neighbors in that they have an unnatural hunger for the word of God. In April, the six of us visited the two Hausa pastor training schools that produce about 90% of the pastors in the principal denomination. And these schools are, are close to our heart because we work with their graduates. It's a very overwhelmingly Muslim country. So we work with these evangelists and pastors that are scattered thinly through our region. And we've sponsored a number of the pastors with their four-year programs here. But we'd never visited ourselves. And what we encountered was, was bracing. Fifty students, six professors, studied in Spartan settings with no air conditions, no, no air conditioners, extremely hot, crumbling, mud and cement walls, minimal books. But they had the Bible, and they loved the Bible. We sat in eight different classes, and, and from professor after professor heard, let's look at the next verse. They worked through passage after passage, verse by verse, in the heat, seemingly forgetful their deprivations. It was wonderful. 
And it, it reminded me of, of one point I share with, with newer missionaries. In developing cross-cultural friendships, you can run into so many roadblocks, not, not only from language difficulties, but just from not being able to engage in conversation rightly. I mean, you can't discuss the NFL or American topics. And I don't know much about millet farming or a conversation that often goes, around, goes on around me. Nevertheless, I tell younger missionaries, just be a Bible nerd in your conversation. Just share about the Bible verses you've been reading or which are near to your heart. And, and suddenly, across the massive cultural linguistic barriers, you have a bridge. Your friendship can grow because House of Believers love and know the same book. They, they love and know the same Christ. We belong to Christ. He is remaking each of his children and giving us new appetites and a new character. He is beautifying his temple because it's not diverse enough if it's mostly full of Americans. He is building a structure not made with human hands, not seen with human eyes, and more glorious than any cathedral. The treasures of the nations, Haggai prophesied, will be brought into God's temple. Our work over these past 12 years has yielded fruit. And I would love to be able to share with you about the Aishas and the Halimas and the Sa'adus who are following Christ. But 1 Corinthians 3 recenters us. If we look at a missionary as some kind of Apollos, we completely miss the point. We miss the point because we miss Christ. The beautification of God's temple in Niger or in Columbia, Maryland or, or anywhere is all about Jesus. As this passage is teaching us in clause after clause. Look at it again with me. As the Lord assigned in verse 5. Verse 6, God gave the growth. It's only God who gives the growth. Moving forward, we are God's fellow workers. God's field. God's building. According to the grace given to me. The foundation is Jesus Christ. God's spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy. You are Christ. And Christ is God's. And another reason I love this passage is because it's a reminder that there are many Pauls and Cephases, Nigerian pastors, evangelists, brothers and sisters who are not here with us today. The temple is being beautified and it's growing in Niger. But I am just one dependent piece of the work. Most of the workers the Daudas, the Laulis, the Musas, they're never going to have a chance to come into this room and join us for a fellowship meal. But it won't always be this way. Our Christ has promised that we will enter his Sabbath rest. 
what we have now is just a foretaste of the great wedding supper of the Lamb. When people will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Please join with me now in the confession of sins.